Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. This episode, we take a trip down memory lane with the help of PC Mag's top 10 most influential games of all time. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McKay. It's that time of year again where Computex is happening. And that tends to put a damper on hardware news for at least a short period of time because everyone's traveling to Computex. Except for me. Except for you. Not this year, anyway. Not this year. Nope. I get to stay home and see what the armchair editors have to say. (laughs) Well, as we've talked about, sometimes it's easier to view the articles and the releases from afar because you can see more and get a better perspective. However, that does mean that we would normally delay this and talk about Computex in retrospect. But this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. All right, what do we have? Well, I thought we would take advantage of an article from one of my favorite gaming magazines, PC Mag, where they are talking about the top 10 most influential video games of all time. It's only 10 games? Well, there are much longer lists out here, but rather than bore the audience too much, I thought 10 would kind of sink it down to really some very influential games. But rather than maybe just talk about what they say, I thought we could take a look, see if we agree, and if we've even played every game on the list. All right. Well, with only 10 games, it's pretty good. So with that in mind, let's open up that Wayback Machine and start with number 10, and we'll post the link to this PC Mag article. They are one of the magazines that I enjoy, even if it does get a little fluffy sometimes on the game news. But number 10, back in 1991, Nintendo released Tecmo Super Bowl. Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson. Now, back in those days, there wasn't a lot to these, and everybody pretty much played the handheld games. Remember those things? You could buy them in the store. And the oh, yeah, with the, yeah, the LED lights and click, 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 yep, and so get across. I think everybody had experience with that, and that's what made Tecmo Super Bowl kind of interesting, because it was real licensed game characters. Maybe the first sports game that kind of everybody knew about. Well, I didn't know about this particular one until seeing somebody post something on Twitter one day, and it was going to a Family Guy episode oh. where they were playing Tecmo Super Bowl <laughs> and Peter wanted to be Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, because Bo Jackson kind of broke the game. It strikes me as there were a couple of players that were like that. Yeah, and they were just really super fast. You and... could tell that the Tecmo folks were fans. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I played a little bit of this. I kind of really enjoy more the coaching and tactical aspects of sports games. I just can't get into playing the simulator portions of the show. So I can't say I spent a lot of time on this one. Right. Well, why this would be an influential game, though, is because I'm going to say it was probably the first licensed sports game that kind of started the whole Madden thing, which is very common now. And, you know, they come out every year. So they have new players all, you know, with every episode. Absolutely. And I think groundbreaking in the sense that, you know, it actually looked like football as much as you could back in those days anyway. So that's number 10. All right, let's go to number nine. Number nine. Now, this is probably the only one on the list that I didn't spend a great deal of time in. Back in 1992, so only a year later, Alone in the Dark for PC. And this is the game that started the horror genre game sort of situation, right? Very creepy. Now, I didn't really get into Alone in the Dark. I played a little bit of Resident Evil, which is what got me into the genre. 
and didn't really become a fan until the Silent Hill era, which is much later. Yeah, see, I didn't play a lot of those. The closest I got was Painkiller. Oh, yeah. And that was kind of, well, it wasn't really a spooky horror <laughs> game. but More of a shooter. More of a shooter, but it did have some spooky elements. You would go into um, areas where you'd have ghosts come in and do jump scares and stuff like that. So Alone in the Dark, for me, was most memorable because it had 3D sound. So if you were blessed with a good 3D sound system, you could drop the lights down and it would get creepy really fast with ambient sound. Yeah, they took advantage of the sound blaster systems. <laughs> yeah, they then. did. So that's number nine, Alone in the Dark. Can you believe 1992 for that one? All right, the next one. I spent a lot of money on this next game. Street Fighter Two, The World Warrior. I don't think I even remembered that it had a subtitle. It's always just been Street Fighter Two, Street Fighter Two Turbo, Street Fighter Two Deluxe, Street oh. Fighter Two versus whatever. <laughs> well, and I played Street Fighter Two at the pizza place because I was working there, and during my breaks and stuff, I'd go out and drop a couple quarters in and play Street Fighter Two. Now this is 1991, which to me also seems like it had to have been newer than that. But like you, I spent a lot of money on this. This was to me, probably the best fighting game until I got involved in the SNK stuff, and then I was a big Samurai Showdown fan. Well, and Mortal Kombat was the logical game that came out afterwards, which was a little bit more realistic because it wasn't animated, so to speak. I'm going to say this was probably an influential game because it started the one-on-one arcade-style fighter. Absolutely, and of course, it's hard to remember that back in those days there were just a handful of characters, so it was pretty easy to find a character that you could associate with and then master all of the moves. Because, you know, back in those days, it wasn't like Tekken, for example, where there are hundreds of moves or art of fighting. You could get that really rock, paper, scissors effect where every move had a good counter move. Mm-hmm. Well, and it added the complexity of it because it cost you 50 cents to even try out the move <laughs> and to practice yeah. them. So it paid off to uh, spend and invest in one particular character. Absolutely. Now, arcade, too. This is one of the ones that would started the tournaments where you'd see people fighting and they had prizes and stuff. So I think it was hugely influential in that way, too, because before that, I mean, you'd have people doing Pac-Man tournaments and stuff, but it wasn't interactive. Well, you have seen the movie Pixels, right? Well, of course. Well, and that was in the 80s, and they were doing all sorts of tournaments back then. But, well, and then what was that other one that was the, the wizard? Yeah, but these were more solitary experiences for the most part in the arcade. You went in and tried to put the highest score up as opposed to literally besting your peers in combat. So arena style. Yep. So back in 1991, that was, wow, starting to feel old here on this list. So next we have number seven. Now we're going to jump forward to 1998 for PlayStation. That is Metal Gear Solid. With uh, the guy's name Snake? Solid Snake. That's right. Now, Metal Gear Solid took advantage of the stealth aspect, and I think for a lot of folks, myself included, this was the first game where I felt like I didn't have to immediately engage in combat. Oh, right. It it paid off to figure out how to get around the map and either avoid or uh, confront them directly. Yeah, and this really started, I think, the stealth genre off, arguably maybe still influential. I mean, it had the infamous box. You could hide in the box. <laughs> Hide in the box. Well, and they list a couple of games in here that are influenced by Metal Gear Solid. Obviously, they came out afterwards. We had Assassin's Creed. 
which is a big um, NVIDIA physics game, and then also Splinter Cell, which is one that I wanted to play, but I never could get myself to go down and buy it. Yeah, Splinter Cell had some good games that eventually came through on the PC in the Tom Clancy series as a very direct descendant. I think for me, though, the stealth genre was fully realized with the first Thief game. I absolutely loved Thief, and they've come out with a newer one since that just didn't scratch that itch. But to me, Thief really had a storyline where you never had to have combat, which was uh, very influential in in my train of thinking, although a lot newer than Metal Gear. Yeah, nowadays it's uh, rare to be able to go through a game without engaging some sort of an enemy somewhere. Now, this next one for me is a bit of an oddball, not just because of what it is, but because it's not the kind of game that I would ever engage with. Yeah, same here. Guitar Freaks, 1999. So Guitar Freaks was an arcade game that had two guitars hooked to it and is really the forerunner of all of these rock band and guitar games. This uh, was, of course, an arcade thing that had some licensed music in it. Not a lot, if I remember correctly. And maybe could be responsible not only for the guitar heroes and rock bands, but for interactive games like Dance Dance Revolution they list here. Right. Well, you also had Duck Hunt. You know, you can't, you're replacing a guitar with a simulated pistol or shotgun or something like that. Now, I have to say, I never really liked any of those games in the arcade with the different devices. I mean, the the sniper was one that I can remember trying to get good at, and it just never felt like it was Well, the the accuracy enough. wasn't... Um... In an arcade game, obviously they can spend a little bit more money on the hardware, but this is still in the 90s. So the accuracy level, you know, you got a 240 by 320 oh, screen. Yeah. So you could be completely off and then still miss because they want you to hit that exact very, pixel. Very frustrating, all of them. So I, I honestly have kind of learned to avoid them. Even today, I rarely will play a gun game or anything like that in the arcade. Yeah. The last one I played was actually Duck Hunt, and I would go down to the convenience store and just like Marty McFly when yeah. he went back in time, right? <laughs> so that's number six, Guitar Freaks. Not a win for either of us, and I had kind of forgotten it existed. Next one on the list. This was a fun game. I love this one. Now, this one's maybe a little bit controversial for me because it's Wolfenstein 3D, which is way back in 1992. And I think folks would say that maybe Doom or even Quake Arena were more widely felt games. Right, but they came later. But Wolfenstein 3D, yeah, I definitely remember playing it and thinking that there was nothing like it. And now I look back on it and go, wow, really, that's where 3D started? Because it seems so Mickey Mouse. Well, and it wasn't necessarily 3D. It was simulated 3D. (laughs) Yeah, but they did a great job. They did. And I still remember back in the shareware days when you would get discs in the mail. Yeah. We had um, a copy of 3D Pac-Man. Oh. And it was drawn the same way that Wolfenstein was drawn, where he had the forced perspectives. Oh, right. But you would be walking through a, ma- a maze, and then around the corner would be a power pellet, and around another corner would be a ghost. And you didn't know where you were going, so you were really a rat in a maze. Oh, my gosh, that would be crazy. I don't think I ever played that. To me, the first-person game that I played the most that I would consider a 3D one was The Bard's Tale which was kind of a similar thing. I mean, it was kind of a point-and-click game with 3D graphics. And I spent a great deal of time in that. And Wolfenstein 3D to me was fun, but kind of repetitive. I didn't come on board really until Doom. Uh, Right. Same here. I played a lot of Doom and Doom 2 shareware style. 
I didn't play Wolfenstein until way later because I didn't know it existed because Doom was the only one that I was familiar with. Very interesting. And I think it was when I got that ID disc that had all of the demos on it, the infamous oh, yeah, that ID was, demo disc. That was the original Quake disc. Where everything could be unlocked that I really took an interest in any of the other games like Heretic and... Well, I don't even remember what they all were. It seemed like there were dozens of them that were basically variations of the same game. Yeah, I think they still had Commander Keen on there, or was that a 3D Realms game? Either way, it was it had everything on there. It was amazing. We talk a lot about what got us into gaming, and I talk a lot about my competitive gameplay in Battlefield 4, but a lot of folks out there probably don't know because it's not something that I fly my geek flag for, but my first competitive ranked title was Quake Arena, which was a direct descendant, and I was good at because of my time in Doom. Well, good for you. Yay! Yay! That'll take you back, too. But that was way back in 1992, so I'm seeing kind of a trend of about what era gaming exploded here, and I have to agree a little bit with it. Yeah, we should look up to see who the author was, because... He's probably dating himself as well. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Next game, uh, No Wonder. Oh, yeah. Number four. Now, this one's 2001, and this one I would honestly have a hard time believing is that old, too. Grand Theft Auto 3. And this basically started 3D open world. That's right. Now, I played Grand Theft Auto from the beginning, and the first one... Side-scroller-esque, oh, right? Oh, no, top-down. Oh, that's right. It was basically a car combat game where you could get out of your cars and do some very basic stuff. But essentially, you'd jump in cars and you'd chase each other around and wreck, and that was kind of all there was to it. But it was a multiplayer, land-friendly, I hesitate to call it a racing game, but just a car mayhem game. And you'd never believe that it was going to evolve into the big open-world mission-based monster that it's become. It with complete with mods and an online component, which well, is it's, crazy. It's really influenced the genre of open world completely. I mean, they list Saints Row 2 here, and the Saints Row series is, is really amazing. And Yakuza and even Mafia are more modern games that take this in different directions. But these days, more often than not, the manufacturers of these games are trying to make everything open world. And you can thank the runaway success of Grand Theft Auto 3. I've noticed that a lot of these games are arcade or PlayStation. There's not anything specific for the PC yet. Well, and that is kind of a surprise a lot. But I think it's because most people were first introduced to games through consoles. That's true. That's true. So even if you are a PC gamer, the odds are pretty good that you first became a gamer elsewhere, either at the arcade or on a console. Mm -hmm. All right, next game is going way back. Now, this is putting the Wayback Machine together to 1972. I don't know about you, but I was alive in 1972, but barely. And this one was first released for the arcade, which is also one of those things that just baffles me. Like, you could go play Pong in an arcade, most likely a bar back in those days. Well, and the first time I saw Pong, it was a console. It was a console device that had like three knobs on it and a couple of switches and you hook it into your television. So the fact that it says first release for arcade, I can't imagine what an arcade machine would look like in 72. I honestly would probably like to drag one of these out and force my kids to play it just to see how sad it would be. (laughs) I don't think it would engage their attention for more than a couple of seconds and they'd wonder what the big deal was. You would be surprised. Some of these old games have... um, 
a lot of replayability. Right. But it's a matter of changing your mental thinking. Like with Pong, it's, you know, it's pretty simple. It's hit the little bouncing ball going back and forth. But uh, some of the text-based games that we used to play on like the Commodore and for me, the, um, the PC, where you had to actually remember what was being said and figure out where you were. Oh, the old text-based games. Yeah, those ones, you know, they teach you a lot of cognitive skills as well forcing you to remember things. Otherwise, you can't get anywhere in the game. Yep, I actually remember tagging along with my dad down to the university and playing Zork while he was working because that was the only place you could play back in the day. One of my early game experiences. Now, I re-experienced Pong much later when I bought an Atari 2600, and it came with a cartridge that included Pong, and I think we decided it was combat, some tank game, and a couple other games that were all kind of basically the same bounce stuff off walls games. It's amazing that that game could fit on those little cartridges. And it's only like maybe a half a K mm-hmm. for the actual game code, you know, because Atari didn't have a lot of memory on those things. Oh, yeah. Now, now Nowadays, even having a game like that on your phone would be kind of ridiculously sad. So that's number three, back from 1972. Number two. I have a lot of time in this game. So number two is from 1986 for the Nintendo Entertainment Center. And it is Super Mario Bros., the original Super Mario Brothers. Now, this is not the original Mario Brothers game, which a lot of people forgot existed. This is the first Super Mario Brothers side-scroller. And even today, it has kept Nintendo alive for all these years with all the different variations. Now, what I find interesting in this article, it says first release for NES, which would be console. The first time I ever played it and saw it was in an arcade in the convenience store. Yeah, and I have to admit that I was an Atari guy initially, so I didn't have a Nintendo for a while. I got my next console, uh, was a Genesis, a Sega Genesis machine. And so for me, the game that scratched this itch was Sonic the Hedgehog, which was my first real side-scrolling addiction. It did eventually get me to go back and get an NES system, but that was more because the characters were so iconic that I had to pick up a system just to see what I was missing. Yeah, see, I went Atari 2600 directly to the PC. All the other consoles were either at friend's house or something that I bought afterwards and then either borrowed or whatever. Well, I had the experience when I first graduated from high school of working at a video game store where we bought and sold used video games. And so I went through a whole new renaissance where I learned about a lot of these classic games and some of the more obscure games and systems would come through. So I kind of maybe to this day can credit my love of video games with the short time that I worked there. Not the greatest job, didn't pay a lot, but the side benefits were phenomenal. Well, yeah, you got to try out every game that comes in, right? Yep, and at the end of the day, take them home if they weren't sold. So you could play all kinds of stuff. And I ended up buying and selling a lot of systems myself because you get the chance to get an SNK systems, which were expensive and rare, and take it home and, you know, buy the cartridges and import stuff. And it was pretty amazing. And, you know, to this day, I still feel like I have a more than is healthy addiction to playing games in general. So my bad. I I don't think it was that bad. Ah, So that takes us to number one. And this one was kind of a surprise for me. I'm not sure I would have picked it as number one, but it makes sense. It does. Back in 1980, a little game came out for the arcade called Pac-Man. Pac-Man. 
So Pac-Man started Pac-Man Fever. They had songs about it. And it was everywhere in big machines and small machines and pizza places and bars. <laughs> well, in the first paragraph didn't hear it says, Arcades, pizza shops, bogodas, laundromats. In the 80s, it was nearly impossible not to spot Pac-Man upright. Now, Pac-Man, to me, I think deserves the number one spot for one very major reason. And that is, it's the first game that entered popular culture and attracted not just the closet gamers and the casual gamers, but it attracted women, children, men, non-gamers alike to the arcade because it was not a complicated concept, not offensive, kind of cute and bright colored. And on the surface, at least, it looked easy to play. So it encouraged you to keep plugging in those quarters. Yeah. Well, you could do um, the first two levels without getting too difficult. Oh, yeah. After that, then... You know, you could pick up where you left off or you could just start playing again. And the, and the whole idea was to get a high score. And that's what started the, some of the mania and the competitions, actual organized right. competitions for these. I have to say that for me, Pac-Man was a little simplistic, but it was one of those that you always kind of expected to plug a quarter into because everyone played Pac-Man. So you would throw a few quarters in it and then move on to whatever was kind of your niche game that you like to play at the arcade. But inevitably... The Pac-Man machine was always busy. And then later, of course, they put out the Miss Pac-Man machine. And that was a direct reflection of the fact that suddenly women were playing games. And Pac-Man was a large part of that. Well, and it was a way for them to upgrade the code because um, the original Pac-Man had a limited code set. So it was somewhat repeatable, right? Yes. And with Miss Pac-Man, they expanded the memory, expanded the game code so that everything was progressive. So it, it was somewhat unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, there were some rules to it that could be exploited, but it was more of a, well, we use the term these days, procedurally generated, where it was reactive. And that was revolutionary, too. I would tell you that Miss Pac-Man, in my opinion, is the better game and maybe more deserving, except for Miss Pac-Man couldn't exist without Pac-Man. So with that in mind, I think there are gaps in the list that we should talk about. All right. So, for example, we talked a little bit about this, but you know, what was your first really memorable game? What gaming experience would you say made you a gamer? It made me a gamer. Well, let's see. I could do go back to the Atari 2600, but that was more of kind of like a family game. So like, for instance, we had a cartridge for casino games. So it kind of taught me how to play blackjack. Oh, the beginning of the end there. Yeah. And it taught me a little bit about poker, but to this day, I still can't remember what hand beats what hand and stuff like that. So it's more of a, hey, I got two pair. Awesome. Well, Pac-Man was on the Atari 2600. But what ended up doing it for me, PC Master Race, <laughs> so when we got the PC, dating myself here, but it was a Tandy 1000 SX. You can look that one up if you want. It had 640K of memory, ran MS-DOS, had two five and a quarter inch floppy drives, not even a hard drive. But at the time, you know, it was a family machine. So... The family bought books. You know, my dad bought a, a book on BASIC, right. t- teaching how to program BASIC and how to use MS-DOS. But in the back of these family magazines, you could order shareware games. Yes, I remember. So, you know, for and it was, just, it was a lot like the records, right? So you could go and send in $10 and get 20 discs, and it had a bunch of shareware games on it. One of them on there, long story short, right? <laughs> one of them, one of the games that we got was called Hack. Oh. And this was a roguelike game. And nowadays you can get the upgrade of it. It's called NetHack. Oh, famous. That, now it's ringing a bell. Well, that was the game 
that I would spend hours and hours on. I got to the point where, you know, I was trying to get down to get the Amulet of Yender, which is, you know, 20 or 30 levels down, depending on what version you're playing. It got to the point where I couldn't save my game because I found out, hey, you can save the game and then copy the save. And then if you die, you can go back to that one point that's my exploiting the save system, right? But those save files got too big to be saved on one disk. So at that point, I had to figure out how to span the save across two disks. And, you know, being a, it was a Tandy 1000, it was running at 7 megahertz. Gosh, that's so long ago. Yeah. And uh, five and a quarter disks were not fast. So I would save the game and then get up, go down to the store, grab myself a candy bar and a soda, come back, and it would just then finish. And then I could start my copy and then start to play the game again. And this would take like hours. But it kept me busy, kept me from getting in trouble. And it was the kind of game you could get lost in, assuming you got into the game. You know, I was like seeing your little at sign going around. Hey, K, K's are easy. And then you see like, oh, hey, it's a a carrot. Oh, I better run away from that guy. You know, so you had to associate those with like, you know, dragons and imps and stuff like that. So Yeah, it's hard to believe what we used to do with our imaginations. My first really memorable game experience is probably a game called Empire. Empire. So Empire doesn't get a lot of press these days, but I had a buddy whose dad worked from home and had the luxury of having not one, but two Apple computers. I think there were two E's maybe back in those days that were connected on a network, which seems like such a huge luxury back from when I was in junior high. Well, yeah, that was like a null modem cable or... Did he use the little coax? I honestly couldn't even begin to tell you. I just know it didn't always work. Ah. But he had a game called Empire, or now in retrospect, maybe Empire Deluxe by that time. And it was basically a game where you had different units. You had air units and ground units and sea units. And they were represented sort of similar to your description by characters on the screen that were, you know, they weren't letters, but they were this shape equals an airplane and this shape equals a boat. And what you'd do is you'd program your moves. And there was like a fog of war where you could only see so many hexes based away or how many squares maybe. Gosh, man, it's been so long. And so you'd program your moves and your opponent would program their moves. And then when you both were done, the movement would happen simultaneously. And when the units would hit each other, there was a procedural combat, which I'm a little vague on how it worked out. But you'd see what happened and then you'd respond to it with your next set of moves. So it was sort of a blind turn-based combat game. And we used to play that in the evening because you could program your eight or nine units in about 10, 15, 20 seconds then hit the button and wait for a minute or so and then watch it happen. And he would watch it on one screen, my buddy Ken, and I would watch it on mine. And we would try to beat each other up on what seemed in those days to be a gigantic open world, but it was really only about the size of a 1080p monitor. Wow. And, you know, that reminds me of a game I used to play with a friend of mine over the modem. Oh, wow. And it was called Anacreon. And it, um, the premise of the Anacreon was you're a um, space general. You're in charge of something that happened in space. Well, it takes a long time to send a spaceship from one planet to another planet. So the idea is that you would get up for a day and then you would sleep for 10 years. Oh, wow. So for that day, you would get up and figure out, okay, well, this is what I need to build. This is where I need to send stuff. And this is where I'm predicting these people are going to be. And that's, you would plan your moves. And then you would go to sleep and then you would wake up and then you would figure out what happened during those 10 years. So it was basically turn-based, but it was artificially forced to be 10 years. So what I would do is we would, um, uh, I would do my moves, I'd make the save, and then we would dial 
our computers together. I would transfer the file to him. And oh. then he would play his person. And then send it back. And then send it back. Wow, it's almost like an old mail order game. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, chess over the phone, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely have lots of fond memories of games that I kind of wish they'd re-release. I mean, Mule and, you know, that I would maybe hunt down again and try to run. I'm surprised that they don't have them somewhere on my phone. Maybe they do. So we've talked a lot about games, but in an effort to find a good reason, there must be some game that got you interested enough in programming and computers, right? Is that the transition that gets most of us involved in this hobby? Well, you start either with games and then the hardware aspect gets on top of the games. Uh, For me, it was, uh, you know, it's kind of a life system, right? So in uh, early college, I got kicked out of the house. Oh, no. And I was a poor college student. So basically, you know, all of my money either went to school or it was into the car stereo that was in my truck. <laughs> so, I've been there. Yeah. So when I was out on my own, I'm sitting on my couch waiting for work to start and I had nothing to do. So I got, I say, hey, well, I can put a computer together and then started you know, basically reliving my childhood on my own by putting the you know, getting this component put together, go buy a sound card, break the motherboard, you know, so I learned some of those aspects. But what really separated me from just building a computer to working or worrying about what went into that computer was Quake. I mean, there was a a system I built. It was a a Cirrix x86 or something like that, way, way back, the Pentium clone processor. It didn't have a lot of floating points, so it didn't do the calculations required to play quake because we didn't have graphics accelerators back then um and i hadn't gone to buy the voodoo card so ah the good old voodoo card so yeah i would be like play that and say hey well if i got the voodoo card then i don't need to upgrade my processor because the processor was twice as much as the voodoo card so you know you have to weigh the pluses and minuses and you know it, it in a way it was building the computer based on specs not necessarily based off of popular opinion or what happens to be cheap it was, you know, buy the best thing that I could afford. Well, my story is a little bit different in that I started out as a console gamer between that period of time where I had my original uh, console, the Atari 2600, and the time that I moved into more advanced consoles. It's hard to say that now, like the Sega Genesis. I went out and bought a Commodore 64 because I had stumbled across some friends at school that were also hardcore gamers. But they were the early predecessors of the PC Master Race. These guys were hardcore, so they were doing early hacking of games to try to get around copy protection and BBS and games over the internet, which in those days seemed so, I don't know, cool and forbidden. And they could get me free games. And see, I did that exact same thing. But, um, you know, I didn't tell anyone about it. (laughs) So I had my friends for a while, and then one of them actually got into some serious trouble, which is a story for another day. But I did get all kinds of free games from them. It's not a theme here about places where I can play games without having to buy them. But I was playing so much on my Commodore that my dad said, hey, you're spending too much time playing games. You should probably find something useful to do. So he forced me to go to a code camp. So I went to learn basic and did well and enjoyed it enough that I went back and took a, what in those days was an advanced basic class. Advanced basic, that's a double negative. And that negative. gave me enough information, I know, advanced basic, that I could do some basic game programming. So I got involved in magazines sort of similar to yours that had code snippets in them. 
So I'd spend hours transcribing my code from the pages because you didn't get it on disks if you were poor. And um, typing it in, and hopefully there was no syntax. And if there was, I'd figured out how to fix it. And then I'd make that code that would make that little race car go across the screen in this 8-bit glory. And then would go back and try to figure out how to make it do other stuff. And that's what initially got me into PC gaming and the specifics of it. And then like you, I soon realized that my limitations weren't the code. The limitations were the hardware. So I started looking for ways that I could get, oh, I need a double-sided drive so I could store more stuff. And then I need a 128 so I have more processing power and memory so I can put these more complicated things together. And that was just kind of the tip of the iceberg for me. Yeah, and see, I learned basic from a book. <laughs> you know, obviously I could copy the stuff out of the magazines and figure out how to run the spaceship up the mountain and stuff like that. But, you know, I was drawing pictures because in basic you can, um, you could do point to point lines and oh, draw yeah. shapes and stuff. So I was drawing planes and cars. I see and, early vector graphics. Yeah. And that helped me a lot when I got into architecture school because AutoCAD worked the exact same way. I could sit there on the command line, click, 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 click. And pretty soon I had half of the building. I wouldn't have to move the mouse at all. That came direct from that early programming experience that I had, which I guess is a reason to learn that stuff. Well, definitely. So I think we both are sort of in a similar mode. You needed better hardware to support the software. So it's kind of one of those things where it's never enough and it just hasn't ended. Well, I think it might have, <laughs> but that might be for another time. Well, that's been our trip down memory lane with the top influential games, the top 10 at least, with a little bit of us thrown in there. Well, we must have missed some games that were influential if you're listening to this. So if we missed a great game that didn't get its deserve on this, send us an email or call us out on Facebook or Twitter. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Google or like us on Facebook. This has been an Engine Lane production, copyright 2016. Thanks for listening. <laughs>